You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Good morning. Our text of scripture this morning is Luke chapter 10. I know that your bulletin says verse 30 to 37, but we're studying 25 through 37. So Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. I'm going to give you guys some time to turn there, especially the band as they walk back. I always feel rushed sometimes to get back to open my Bible, so I'll give them some time. And as, as I reflected past in this previous sermons on this series, I'm so grateful for the preaching team and, and the work of expositing the Word of God here in Redemption Church. God has given us a faithful servant through Justin, and he has put together guys, men that are willing to step up and preach the word faithfully. And this is rare. This is very rare. I, I don't think I've seen this exemplified so well in a church here in Wilson like I've seen here or anywhere else, especially in my country. You, you don't see this in my country. And I'm grateful that, that I can be part of this, and I'm very humbled by it. And there's this phrase that we tend to say that when we're eating, that we save the best for last. And that's actually accurate because Justin's preaching next week again. So, <laughs> so he's going to be closing this series next week for us. And today we're going to be turning to Luke. Uh, we have been studying for Matthew so far on the parables of our Savior. But today we're going to see Luke's perspective on some of these parables and how Jesus teaches us on on being a good neighbor, being a neighbor to other people. So Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read the verses 25 through 36. Follow along with me. Then the expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him. How do you read it? And he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus took up that question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell in the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed him mercy, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. I don't know for certain, but I believe that I have a pretty good knowledge on almost every kind of diet there is out there. 
every type of way to lose weight. I've been trying to lose weight for a long time. In fact, I have a Brazilian friend that he's really good at that kind of stuff. He's like a personal trainer and he knows how to diet. He knows how to control his food. And he was helping me, explaining to me everything there is to know about how your body reacts to what you eat. So he explained to me what protein does, what carbs does, what fat does. So at the end of like two months learning from him, I, I could consider myself like specialist, right? But as you can see, nothing changed. I was a specialist on losing weight, but I in fact never actually lost the weight. I knew I had knowledge on a field, but I never put that field into practice. I don't know if you ever met, for example, a dietitian that is very big or a veterinarian that hates pets or a lung doctor that is addicted to smoking. So these are examples of being specialists in something and not putting your knowledge into practice. This is exactly what we see here in this passage. We see a man that is supposed to be a lawyer, a specialist in the law, a guy that spent his whole life studying the law of scripture, not understanding a word of what he actually studied. He could know the, he could read the words, he could understand what the word said, but he not never actually put that into practice. Today we see Jesus transforming the perspective of this man of reading and understanding what this says and actually putting it into practice. But we see that Jesus does this through a parable. He uses a parable to teach him a lesson on biblical interpretation. So I don't know if you know what hermeneutic means. Hermeneutics is the interpretation of scripture. How do you read a scripture and interpret it so you can apply to your lives. Jesus is doing exactly that, however, through a story. He uses a story to interpret scripture. So today, we're going to see how te Jesus teaches this by like a movement. There's a movement in this text. That's why we are preaching from 25 through 37, and not only the parable 30 through 37, because context matters, okay? This parable is not just a parable loose in the Bible that we can just take it out of its context and interpret the way we want. This very first verses on this passage of Scripture matters because it influences how we interpret the parable. Jesus is telling this lawyer that our compassion to others must start with Scripture. He knows that. However, it must be evidenced, it must flow from the example that we find in Christ and then be evidenced in our compassion. So if we were to put this, this text in one sentence or like Justin likes to say the sermon summary, I would say the main idea. The main idea of this text would be it is only through Christ that we can put our knowledge of the word of God into a compassionate practice. It is only through Christ that we can put our knowledge of the Word of God into compassionate practice. And this compassionate act, this compassionate practice, must start with scriptural truth. That's going to be our first point of study. Starting with scriptural truth, knowing the Word, which is verses 25 through 28 in our text. Then it must flow from Christ's example being the Word of God, which is verses 29 through 36, and it must be, evidenced in, must be evidenced in service or in compassion, doing the Word of God, which is verses 37. 
Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful for your mercy, your love, your kindness showed toward toward us through your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful because your word is clear, is direct, is simple, and is so effective in our lives. And this morning we ask you that you may reveal to us what your word means so that we can be what he says and do what he says. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So let's begin starting with scriptural truth, knowing the word of God. Look with me at verses 25 through 28. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So out of nowhere, a lawyer stands up. So we're studying Luke here, right? We're not in Matthew. We're not doing a parable in Matthew anymore. We're doing Luke. And Luke is very precise in where he positions his things or his themes in his book. If you study Luke, if, for example, you sit down in your, in your home right now and read Luke in one sitting, I actually love doing that, like reading one book of the Bible in one sitting. It might take like three or four hours, but it's worth it. If you read in one sitting, you're going to see that it flows. There is like a direction of where he's wanting to go. And in his previous chapters, we see that Jesus is starting his road to Jerusalem. In chapter 9, he's starting a trip. He's traveling with his disciples. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And he's teaching along the way. And he, he's sending people out. He's telling people, go, make disciples, and go to the villages. He sent 72 men to, to preach the word. And there is a passage in, in chapter 9 that they go to a Samaritan village, starting in verse 51 in chapter 9. And the whole village rejects Christ. The Samaritan village, which is one of the main uh, characters in our passage. And everybody rejects Christ. And Jesus keeps teaching and teaching and teaching and comes to a point in chapter 10, verses uh, verses 17 through 22, verses 21 through 22, where he prays to the Father. And he rejoices. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven. I'm in verse 21 right now. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus is literally thanking the Father, blessing the Father, because the wise cannot see him. And then this wise man stands up to test Jesus. And look at the posture of this man. Pay attention how he is so full of himself and lacks humility. He comes with this posture of, I'm a lawyer. I know what I'm talking about. And he goes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Almost like I already know the answer, but I just want to test you to see if you don't. What are you you teaching about? And I want you to compare the posture of this guy with another character in the Bible that also asks a similar question. But in Acts, Acts chapter 16, verses 29. Paul and Silas are in, uh, Paul and Silas, they're in jail right now, and here in Acts uh, chapter 16. And this jailer, they, there's this big event, they pray, and the jail breaks up. 
And this jailer comes to him, comes to them when he wakes up in verse 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. But look at his posture. With fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. We have a lawyer standing up, full of pride, full of himself. And we have this jailer falling down in humility, asking the same question. And what I want us to think today is what is our posture before the Lord when we come and we are faced with a question, what do we have to do to be saved? Notice that he's focusing him on doing, all right? What must I do to be saved? This is the kind of question that every shy believer dreams of having his best friend asking him. Like if you're a shy believer and you really struggle with sharing the gospel, I think your biggest dream is somebody come to you and, man, what must I do to be saved? What can I do to follow this Jesus that you follow? Like that's your dream right there. Everybody wants this question to be asked, but the posture matters. The posture matters. We often hear people asking this question to mock Christianity, to insult us, to say that we are stupid, that we lack intelligence, that we believe in a myth. And this guy comes to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and asks this question in that manner. And Jesus is about to change his whole world and change his whole perspective. Because Jesus answers with a question. That's something that we tell our kids never to do, right? That's unpolite. But Jesus actually does that with, with intention. Because he's asking him, hey, you know the answer. Jesus' irony on answering the question about the law is that he's affirming the same source of authority, but he's about to reshape the interpretation of that source of authority. Jesus is telling this man, you know the answer because you have the right source of authority, but you just don't get it. So Jesus asks, what does the law have to say about it? What is written in the law? How do you read it? He's asking a lawyer what's written in the law. It's like obvious that he knows the answer, right? But a lot of people try to interpret this on how do you read it, the second question of the Lord. How do you read it? A lot of people tend to think about this as, oh, everybody can interpret the way they want. And Jesus is actually affirming this. How do you read it? How do you read it? How do you read it? So there's different uh, opinions on how to interpret, right? That's actually not what he's doing here. Because back in that time, asking how do you read it didn't mean what do you mean by it? How do you interpret it? It just, just means recite it to me. Because they didn't have a lot of copies of the Bible hanging around. So people had to memorize and they had to remember and they had to know how to read it and how to say it by their memory. So he's, he's saying recite it to me. He's not saying interpret it to me. The one doing the interpretation here is Jesus, not the lawyer. So he asks, how do you read it? And the answer is great, because he answers it correctly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, with, and your neighbor as yourself. So he's quoting here Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, 18. 
bind together. Two verses of Scripture of the Old Testament, of the law, that every Jewish would know by heart. This is the kind of thing that you teach your kids that, to say before they go to bed. So everybody knew, every little kid knew, and he knew that that was the simple answer, the direct answer, and the correct answer. So much so that the Lord says, you're correct. You have answered correctly. And it's, it's surprising to, to see Jesus answering this like he is correct, because he knows he's not, right? Jesus knows that this guy has a heart full of pride, full of himself. He knows he's not right. But what Jesus is doing is transforming this guy's perspective on the next question that he's, he's going to come. to understand that the word is applied to our hearts, And he's about to make his jaw drop here because he says, you have answered correctly. Notice that he says, you have answered correctly. He didn't say you were doing it correctly. He says, you have answered correctly. The word of God reveals the truth. However, we have to do it. It's not only knowing what the word says. We have to do what the word says. And that's exactly what this guy is doing. He just knows, but does not put into practice. And then Jesus goes and commands him, go, do this, and you will live. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, believe in me, and you will live. Believe in what I'm about to do in the cross, and you will live. No, he affirms scripture saying, this is the truth, do this, and you will live. So if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. You will inherit eternal life. So to inherit eternal life, one must obey the law to the fullest, never committing one single mistake, always loving others as ourselves, always loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind. Is that possible? Is that possible? Jesus is not saying that the word of God is not important. Of course it is important. So much so that it is correct. It's the right answer. But knowing that is not enough. It starts with that. That has to be our focal point to start our compassion towards others and our action on it. Secondly, so first we start with scripture. Secondly, it must flow from Christ. And that's where we go to the second question. Now that Jesus said, okay, you know their answer, go and do it. The lawyer looks at him and like, wait a minute, nah, can't be it. I know I'm not doing everything, so maybe the, there's, there's a little breach there. Maybe I can change and tweak a little bit. And he thinks about a question of this latter part of the neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself, and he tries to interpret that the way he wants. And he asks, but who is my neighbor? I know who my neighbor is. I'm asking you just to make sure we have the same answer. My neighbors are all the other Jewish people. I can serve them. I can love them. They, they serve the same God as I do. So who's my neighbor? Let's see if you know the answer. And that's where the parable comes in. That's where we are going to start seeing Jesus transforming the perspective of this question. Because if you notice, this question is wrong. That is the wrong question to ask. And we are going to see what the right question is. Who is my neighbor? 
Notice that the text says that the lawyer stands up to justify himself. He knew that he was doing something wrong. A commentator says that Jewish people, the tradition, their tradition, they were accustomed to being evaluated on the basis of their ancestry and not on the basis of their performance. So for them, to be Jewish was enough. They didn't have to do anything else. They already knew the law. They already knew Yahweh, the, the God, the creator of everything. So they didn't have to do anything else. And that's what I mean by, Lord, maybe I can change a little bit here when I read this. Maybe I can tweak it a little bit to make my truth, to make what I want it to be. And this passage, this text has been used for just that. Over and over and over again, people are using the parable of the Good Samaritan to create nonprofits, to create church ministries, to create several other things to love their neighbor. But it's in fact just to show off their knowledge, their service, and they don't do what the Samaritan is doing in this passage, and that's what we're going to study now. Jesus is going to start answering this question by means of a parable. Notice that Jesus is patient. He had all the reasons in the world to just be irritated and short with this guy. The guy is asking the third question by now. Like, it's like a little kid, hey, can I do this? Can I do that? Like poking Jesus, and Jesus is patient and calm and willing to tell him a story to rebuke his argumentation. How many times have we given up on people that keep bugging us for not understanding what we're trying to say? How many times do we keep inviting people to church, telling people about Jesus, and they keep rejecting and rejecting and rejecting, and we just give up? I'm like, yeah, there's no hope for that guy. But here in Jesus, we learn that even the most stubborn of our friends, our family members, our coworkers, they're still worth our patience. Maybe tell him a story and keep telling him your story, the story of how Jesus transformed you. But never give up. Never give up on your, on your friends and families that do not believe in Christ yet. Let's dig in in this parable. We already read the parable. I'm not going to read the whole parable again. I just, we're just going to focus on four main characters in this parable. Okay? There's four main characters. And this is the man, uh, the Levite, the, actually the man, the robbers, the Levite, and the priest, and the Samaritan. We're going to leave the innkeeper away because I, we believe that it's just an uh, allegoration of Jesus to put a little something, something in the story to incremate, uh, to put a little step out further that this Samaritan is going to, to do these things for, for his neighbor. So these are the four main characters. Starting with a man. This is a very short phrase. A man. But it's full, full of meaning. And, and I believe this is one of the main meanings of this, this parable. A lot of people make this parable about the Samaritan and prejudice and racial issues. But notice that Luke writes, a man was going down the road. He does not write the color of this man. He does not write where he is from. He does not write how much money he made. He does not write how many family members, what's his religion, what's his background. He just says a man. A man was going down the road. And this is theologically important. 
Because the value of this man is in his humanity and not in his possessions or heritage or anything that he has done in the past. The Imago Day is enough for the Samaritan to see that that man is worth his time, money, investment, and compassion. We are not to look at other people and see all their baggage before we show love, compassion, respect. In our society today, we have these two extremes. We have the extreme of the Jewish guy, the extreme of, oh, I'm white, I'm rich, I'm only going to be around white people, rich people, I'm going to be around the people I want to be, and we choose who to serve based on our own perspective of who we are. And we also have the other extreme, and this is very popular nowadays. The other extreme is choosing who we serve based on them being different than me. I'm going to fight for their rights and choose who to serve, and I'm going to go out and fight for you because you're different than me. You look different than me, and I have to serve those who are different than me. Notice that both of these people are choosing who they're serving. This, this Samaritan, he was not choosing who he was serving. He was serving a man. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter the background. It doesn't matter if it's similar, different, smaller, fatter, skinnier, richer, poor. Nothing matters. It matters that that person is made in the image of God. The second uh, characters in this, in this parable is the robbers. <laughs> These are the ones that they do not serve anybody. These are the ones that they're just interested in doing disservice to everybody. These are minor characters, but they are the ones causing the death of the man in the road. They are the ones causing this man to be there and to give opportunity for this Samaritan to serve. So notice that without the robbers, there would be nobody to serve. Without the people that are doing evil, without the ones that are taking everything away from us, there would be nobody to serve. And this is the representation of sin. This is the representation of fallen humanity. There is evil out there. Therefore, there is good to be done. It's not because there's so much evil out there that doesn't matter what we're going to do anyways. Evil is going to keep happening, right? No. It's because there is evil that we need to do good. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. The philosophy of these robbers is, what is yours will be mine if I can take it. If you have something, I'll take it if, if you let me, if you give me an opportunity. And notice that this road that he's going down is a dangerous road. It's, it's considered a very dangerous path for the time of this, this passage. And it was kind of expected for something like this to happen. You either would travel with more people or you would go during the day or you, you, you'd be careful, carry weapons, things like that. But no, he, it happened to him. These robbers came, stole him, and he was there, leave to dead. That's what our text says. And then comes the priest and the Levite. By chance, a priest was going down that road, that same road that the robbers did. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite. Notice that they're leaving Jerusalem, going down to Jericho. They're leaving their place of worship. They're leaving CCS and going somewhere else. And it's a priest and a Levite. 
to be a pastor and an assistant pastor. Let's think of Justin and Chris leaving CCS, going after, after a church service, going down that street, and they find somebody. That's the context of our passage here. They just left their worship service. They just left praising the Lord, reading the word, and saying how great the Lord is. And they see this man laying on the ground. And you know what they do? Nothing. They do absolutely nothing. It's not like they sinned. It's not like they did something bad. But notice that the lack of attitude, when you see that something good has to be done, it's sinful. If you're faced with a reality that you can be an active partaker of good, and you reject to do it, you're sinning. You were in sin. <laughs> like the philosophy of the robbers is, what is yours will be mine if I can steal it. The philosophy of this priest and the Levite is, what is mine is mine. What is yours is yours. Let's live it like that. Don't have to do anything else, right? You have yours, I have mine. Let's pass along. And it's not like they didn't notice that he was there. The text clearly says that he saw them. He saw him. They saw him. A lot of people interpret this passage as, oh, they were acting in racial prejudice. Again, they didn't know who the man was. We don't know. The text doesn't say. So I cannot put words in this text and say this man was this, his heart was like that. The only thing I can say about this text is they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. They saw the Imago Day and did absolutely nothing. And now the main character, the Samaritan. Here we have a clear identity. We have the identity of the Levite and the priest, and we have the identity of who this Samaritan is. He is a Samaritan. Jesus is talking to a lawyer. The lawyer hearing that a Samaritan is about to do something good is outrageous, okay? For the heart of that lawyer to even think about something good, something holy, and this is important, something holy, something precious coming from God, coming from a Samaritan, that's outrageous. This, yes, this is about race. This is about prejudice. This is about looking at the origin, the ethnicity, the background, the color of the skin, and, and putting a presupposition of what that person is going to act like, do, or believe. And that's where Jesus is hitting. Jesus is saying, that's where you need to have your neighborly love transformed. Because you don't know what a neighbor is. So much so you're asking, who is my neighbor, right? And let's see what this Samaritan does. Let's start with... So his identity, his reaction. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed on the same road, verse 33, came to where he was, and when he saw him, so the same action as the priest and the Levite, he saw him, he had compassion. That is the reaction that was expected for the Levite and for the priest. Compassion. So that's why I like to entitle this, this passage, The Compassionate Samaritan. Because if you notice, the word good is not used here. And the title, The Good Samaritan, is not inspired scripture. It's titles that 
people that wrote this version put there to give us some guidelines. So it's not in the original text. So in the original text, the word good's not there, but the word compassion, mercy is there. And that's what identifies this Samaritan even more than his origin and his uh, ethnicity. And we are going to see that the lawyer gets that later on. So we have his identity, the Samaritan. We have his reaction, a compassionate Samaritan. But now we have his action. You can react and be like, oh, poor guy. Look, let me call 911. Oh, oh my goodness. Let's see if he has family around. No, but his action is precise. And look how the text flows with a series of things that this guy does. He uses all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength, literally, to serve this man. He gave his clothes. How? He bound up his wounds. Back then, you don't just carry like a first aid kit in your pocket when you're traveling. If you have to bond up wounds, you're literally going to strip part of your clothes up, bond it up, and, and clear the, the wounds. And that's what he, literally what he was doing. He was giving his clothes. He was giving his food, oil, and wine to tear, like to treat that, uh, that, that wound. He was giving his transportation, his animal. He put this man in his, on his animal to take him to an end. He was giving his money. He was giving his time, energy. Can you imagine how long it would take him to take him to an inn and to talk to the guy and to spend the night? So if he had any plans to go, I don't know, to a, a job appointment, a job interview, or if he had any plans to spend time with family, things like if he was traveling on a business trip, he, he knew that if there was a, somebody that needed to be served, he would stop everything he was doing and serve that person. Sometimes we're too busy. And we are too attached to our possessions to look for the needs of other people. I'm too busy to go help you out, brother. I'm too busy. And notice that last week, Justin preached on a similar topic, similar passage, but he was focused on brotherly love, on serving brothers and sisters in our local body. This text is everyone. So, brother, if the text from last week, if the sermon from last week did not convict you, this sermon is most likely not going to convict you either. Because if you're not loving and caring for your brother and sister in Redemption Church, how much more can you care and love for people that are not part of this body? How much more can you go out and serve Wilson if you're not serving Redemption Church? This would be very, very hypocritical. And that's not what we're looking for as a church. That's not what unites us. So he gave it all. He gave his clothes, his transportation, his money, everything, his future plan. He planned to come back. The text says that he gave the money to the innkeeper and said, use this, and if you spend more, I'm coming back to check on him and pay you back. It's easy for us to just go help a little bit, never check on that person anymore. And I experienced that a lot on mission trips. I don't know if you know a little bit of my background. I helped a lot of American churches on mission trips in my country. That they would come, spend a week, 
helping the community, being a good Samaritan, helping the community, preaching the gospel, and they would leave and never come back. Now, <laughs> and those that had to care for those people or the local pastor, they wouldn't even check on the local pastor to see if he was doing all right or if he needed anything. So it was the people that were supposed to live out the word, the knowledge that they had, but they would only apply a little bit. They would only take that word and be like, this is what it means, right? I'm doing it all right, right? That's what those lawyers saying. I love my neighbor, don't I? I love all the Jewish people. And Jesus is transforming with this parable, transforming his perspective. The philosophy of the robbers, what is yours will be mine if I can steal it. The philosophers of the priests, the philosophy of the priests and the Levite, what is mine is mine, what is yours is yours. And the philosophy of the Samaritan, what is mine will be yours if you need it. The care the Samaritan offers is not a model of moral, moral obligation, but of exaggerated action grounded in compassion that risks much more than could ever be required or expected. That's what a commentator says. It's not a moral obligation. It's exaggerated action. Brothers and sisters, if we are not known by our exaggerated love for our community, we are doing something wrong. It has to be exaggerated. It has to go beyond the expectations of everybody else. Because we have a Savior that he did just that for us. Jesus did not consider equality to God something to be grasped, but made himself alone, his identity. He was low. He made himself low, the worst of the worst. And seeing us, our transgression, dead in our trespasses, buried in our sins, he had compassion. That was his reaction for our sins. And he gave himself up for us, literally. His clothes torn, his wounds exposed, was filthy with vinegar to drink, had to carry his own cross, he spent hours hanging from a tree. And finally, gave his final breath. But three days later, he came back and raised from the grave as he promised that he would come back and defeated victory. And it's only through him that we can find eternal life. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. Ephesians You'll get there before me, but I'm getting there. Ephesians chapter 2. And as I read this text, think of the story that we just read, the parable that we just read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, this is the greatest but in the Bible, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we are not the men in the road receiving the compassion of Jesus Christ, there is no way we can show the compassion of Jesus Christ to others. If you're here in this room and you have not yet realized that you are dead in your trespasses and you need compassion shown towards you, you will never be able to truly and wholly show compassion to others. We try to invert things. Oh, how often do I hear people saying, oh, I cannot go to church. I say, why? Uh, because I, I do bad things. I do so many bad things. I have, to, I have to fix some stuff first. And they invert the order. They say, I first need to do some good things right here in order to earn the compassion of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we are dead. How can we do anything? If you're dead, how can you do any good? The compassion of Jesus is the only way that we can actually do what the Word of God says. The final question. Jesus finishes this parable. He turns to him and he changes the question. I don't know if you noticed that in the text, but Jesus changes this man's question to who is my neighbor to who proved to be a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor? Who is my neighbor is the wrong question. Who is my neighbor is looking outside to see who I can serve. Being a neighbor is looking inside, knowing that I was served already, so now I go and serve. We're not to look around and find neighbors that are looking, that are needing to, to be served. We're not to, oh, today's Saturday, I'm free, so I'm going to go out, walk around, and see if there's anybody needing any help. No. Because you are transformed as you go in everything you're doing, in your routine, in your daily tasks, you're constantly aware that everywhere around you, there are people who need you. If they need you, go and help. And this goes beyond of helping somebody to change a tire. This goes beyond of helping an old lady cross the street. This is about the gospel. This is about our awareness of deadness around us. We go around and we are blind to the deadness of people and how people are lost around us. And we just go about our day like nothing is happening. And we don't care. We clearly don't care about the lost state of our country, of our neighbors. 
just like this lawyer did not care. Did not care about rightly interpreting scripture. So our compassionate acts must first start with scripture. Must be evidenced. Must flow from Christ's example because he is the ultimate compassion. He is the ultimate uh, good Samaritan in this passage. And third, he must be evidenced in compassion, doing the word. So knowing the word, being the word, and thirdly, doing the word. Jesus asks him in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So who was a neighbor? And he answers, the one who showed him mercy. A lot of commentators, and this is a part that I really struggle with my studies. I am just being honest with you. A lot of commentators say that this guy did not even have the guts to say the Samaritan. But as I read and read and read and struggled with it, I was like, I don't think that's the point. I think he actually got it. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that he doesn't care anymore about who that guy is. He cares about the mercy that was shown. And that's what mattered to him. He doesn't say, oh, the Samaritan. No, he goes towards the action of what he did to be a neighbor. Being a neighbor is not being a member of Redemption Church. Being a neighbor is not being part of the Great Commission Baptists. Being a neighbor is not wearing a shirt to serve Wilson, even though we have two guys wearing that today. But <laughs> Being a neighbor is not in what we do or in our identity, but is in the mercy and compassion that was already shown in Christ Jesus. I, I like to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. Even though the text doesn't clearly say this, doesn't say, oh, he got it, he believed, he understood. But I think because of these details in this text, it shows the, the emphasis of the mercy of the Samaritan and how this lawyer understood that being a neighbor is by showing mercy. And the last, the last part, when he answers the, the Jew guy, the Jewish guy, this lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus says, again, go, go and do this. You go and do likewise. This is one of my favorite, my favorite commands from our Lord in the Bible. Go. So much so I went to Southeastern Seminary, and go is everywhere. So if you've ever been to the campus, you see a big logo go, it's everywhere. Because that's a clear reference to, to Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you at all at, until the end, end of the day. Brothers, yes, we are to show compassion. Yes, we are to raise nonprofits and to have actual events and actions of service. Yes, we are to do, to demonstrate action as a group, as a church, by ourselves. We are to actually do things to serve our community. But the main point of this text is we are to care for the lostness of the heart of those around us. We are to go 
and do likewise. We are to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to go and be compassionate with the lost. A lot of people make the main idea of this text service, good works. Yes, there is that emphasis there as well. But if we just serve for the sake of service, we just go to Africa to build wells, and we don't care about the actual state of their souls, we're not being good, good Samaritans. We're not being compassionate. We're just trying to show off our knowledge of the word without actually showing it off to people in our actions. And I like how this text ends kind of open-ended. It leaves us hanging, doesn't it? It doesn't tell us what the lawyer did with that information. Luke doesn't say, oh, he believed and he went and told all his Jewish friends what Jesus said to him. He doesn't. I wish it did. I wish it would give us a little more information on what happened to these Jews. I, I really want to know what happened to him. I would think I will in eternity if he's going to be there or not. But, but I think Luke does this on purpose. And he's leaving us hanging with that question. He's leaving us hanging. Are we going to go and do likewise? You that are reading this text, are you going to go and do likewise? Or are you going to be like this Jewish man, full of yourself, full of your knowledge of the word, full of the, your time of being in church? Or you're actually going to put into practice. The knowledge of the word of God is only put into practice through the work of Jesus in us. Let us truly show off our knowledge of the word of God to the ones around us. Let us go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, I love you. I love you because you love me first and you showed mercy to me, a sinner. I was dead and you showed compassion. I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty and you gave me water. I was hungry and you fed me. We ask you to apply this word to our lives, that we as a church, we may go and do likewise, like this good Samaritan, like Christ did for us. That the gospel may be a reality in our everyday life, not only on Sunday mornings or on a church event. We may truly apply this goodness of Christ in our lives. And it's in the good name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen.